The rest of you can turn to Genesis chapter 18. Just purely out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you were already familiar with that song? Eh, okay. All right. Uh, you ought to familiarize yourself with it. We'll come back to that one, I'm sure, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, just so you know that the uh, group that put that out is, a, I think they're relatively new. I'm usually behind the eight ball on these things, so they may have been here for 10, 20 years now, and I'm just out of touch. Uh, City Alight, City Alight, A-L-I-G-H-T. Uh, you can put it on YouTube or something like that. You can get the song. I'll tell you another one that we'll probably do that, uh, that City Alight does that we'll want to work into our song list is uh, Christ is Mine Forevermore, another phenomenal song. All right, These are songs that you want to, along with some of the older hymns and some of the best of the choruses that we have these days, you want to find things that are rich, that are going to be able to cover all the ups and downs of life, not just one little niche of life, because life does not just have one niche. You need to have things that you can sing when you're not feeling especially chipper, all right? Songs like that help. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. We have been more or less tracking through Genesis uh, passage by passage as it comes. And I'm going to, uh, well, I don't know if it's necessarily a cardinal sin of expository preaching, but I'm actually going to skip over a passage today. I know the gasps um, are deafening. Uh, instead of doing 1 through 15 in Genesis 18, I'm going to pick up at verse 16. And we're going to do Genesis 18, 16 through 33. My intent is to come back to or to draw on Genesis 18, 1 through 15, a couple chapters later when we actually get to the birth of Isaac. So the passage that we're skipping over, the first half of Genesis 18, is when the Lord visits with uh, Abraham and Sarah and makes another statement about the fact that it will be through Sarah that Abraham will receive a descendant. There's a little bit more specificity and clarity. It's actually going to be at this time next season that this birth will happen. Uh, Sarah laughs. By the way, Abraham laughed first in chapter 17. It, Sarah is the one for some reason who gets the brunt of that. But Sarah laughed in chapter 18. We'll come back and we'll touch on some of those things when we get to, uh, I believe it's chapter 21. All right, but for this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 18, 16 through 33. And let me just tell you up front that uh, I think the reason that this passage is here, they, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what is it that we're supposed to be seeing or understanding by virtue of the fact that God has given us this account I think the reason the, that we have this passage, the theme that we have here, uh, deals in some way with the fact that God's people need to know that the Lord is a just judge. God's people need to know that the Lord is a just judge. Or if you were to put it maybe in uh, more contemporary vernacular, that God is a judge who does what is right. That might be a more simpler and natural way to say it. God's people need to know that. 
This is what Abraham is learning in this passage and what I hope that we will grapple and wrestle with, not just the fact that God is and does right, but what those implications are for us as his covenant people. So follow along with me as I read, starting at Genesis 18:16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now by your Spirit to worship you in the fullness of your being, according to your nature and your character and your work as you reveal it yourself in your word to us. Thank you for the revelation that you give us as your people so that we can know you and your ways rather than being left to grope in the dark. Thank you for the light that we receive through Jesus Christ and by the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. Help us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. God's people need to know that the Lord is a just judge, that he's a judge that does what is right. I'm going to try to work through this passage by focusing on two questions that are asked. The first one is, 
expressed or stated by the Lord himself in what verse is that? Verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the second question that I want to try to key in on to discuss this passage is the question that Abraham asks at the end of verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? In doing that, then, I want to look at verses 16 through 19. And based on the question that God himself poses, shall I reveal to Abraham? I want to look at God's revelation, what he reveals, what he makes known to Abraham in verses 16 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 33, I want to look at Abraham's intercession or Abraham's response. Now, let me say up front. I think in my reading, in my studying, in my pouring over this passage, I think that even though there is a brief little opening in verses 16 through 19, where the Lord is having this sort of inner dialogue or inner monologue with himself, I think this passage or this episode is front heavy, meaning that it is important to get right what is being said in the very first verses in order to rightly understand and appreciate some of the things that happen on in the latter part of the passage. So by, by that, I mean, let me just give you a uh, for instance. For instance, oftentimes when, uh, when this passage is approached, what draws the most attention, where people spill the most ink, or spend most of their time in discussion is on the interaction between Abraham and the Lord where Abraham is sort of bartering God down or pressing God to be gracious and merciful from 50 down to the number 10. Right? That for, for any number of reasons, maybe because we identify with that, we know what it's like to plead with God okay, God, I know that you might want to do this, but what if you just did this? We have vested interests, and so we, we want to see if God is amenable to, to maybe some of the requests that we make. Or we're just struck by the fact that Abraham has the audacity to continue to come back to God over and over again after God has granted one request to say, well, could I ask one more? And maybe just one more after that. Okay, you said yes to that. Could I say one? Right, he, he just keeps going. But if the, if the focus or if our, our attention is drawn by Abraham's interaction with the Lord, as important as what that is, and there, there are things that are revealed about God himself in that interaction, I think we miss some of the, the more profound or, fundam, or fundamental issues that are being communicated in this passage. So, go with me then back to the opening verses, verses 16 through 19. If you know the story of Genesis, you know that in the next chapter, God is going to execute his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. He's going to completely destroy them and wipe them out. God knows that this is going to happen. That said, this passage begins in the run-up to that judgment that God is going to execute with God asking a question, God is, as it were, letting us in on his mind and his thinking here, should I tell Abraham what I am about to do? 
Now, notice that merely by asking this question, there is the acknowledgement or at least an implication that God does not have to tell Abraham what he is about to do. Anything that God would reveal to Abraham about what he is going to do in the next chapter or the chapter after that, anything that God would reveal to Abraham, God will do freely of his own accord, not because he and Abraham are equal partners. It's God's initiative to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do, to bless him with that inside information. That being said, there are two answers, two parts to the answer as to why God will go ahead and tell Abraham what he's about to do. So he asked the question in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Notice verse 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. That's the answer to the question. That seemed clear? Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And then this sort of running dialogue about what's going to happen to Abraham in the future. Here, I think, is the way that this works. In answer to the question, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do, I think that there are two reasons that the answer is yes, two reasons that why God is going to give insight about this impending judgment to Abraham. Number one is because of Abram's or Abraham's privileged position. Notice that Abraham is described as someone who with his descendants will become a blessing to all of the nations. God is about to deal with peoples and cities and towns and groups of people in a significant way. Abraham's mission, what he has been called to do, is a call to bless the nation. So if God is going to be dealing with the nations because of the role that Abraham will play, it's probably good, the Lord says, for Abraham to know what I'm about to do with these people here in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area. Abraham has been brought into the Lord's counsel already. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abraham to himself and lets him in on his plan to bless the world. No one knows this plan except for Abraham. No one knows that God is intending to raise up through Abraham a great nation through which God will be able to bring his blessing to all the other nations who are separated and alienated from God. Abraham knows that because God has called Abraham to himself. And because Abraham stands in close relation to God, Abraham gets the privilege of knowing the mind of God. That is no small thing. Do you know that that is true for us today? We stand 
As people who have been called by God, as God's covenant people, we stand in a prized, privileged position, and one of the privileges of being called and brought to God is that God actually gives us His mind. He tells us what He is thinking. He tells us what He wants. He tells us what He is going to do, both now and in the near future and in the distant future. He doesn't have to do that. Hold your place here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 through 12. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except whom? Except the Spirit of God. Now we have received verse 12, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that it is impossible to know the mind of God. It is impossible to know the mind of the person seated next to you who is a ball of dust that God holds together by the word of His power. You cannot even know their mind unless you were to get into their psyche, into their spirit, unless their spirit were melded to yours, you cannot know the mind of the person seated next to you. I don't care how good your marriage is. I don't care how good your sibling is to you, your friendship, your partnership, whatever it is. You can't do that. How much more impossible is it to know the mind of an infinite God? You have better odds of reading your spouse's mind than you do of knowing the mind of God. But Paul says, God in His kindness, because of the work He has done in Christ, when He reconciles us to Himself, when He adopts us as His children, he does not merely bring us in and give us a new title or a new position. He gives us new rights and privileges. He gives us His Spirit that He puts within us. His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is God, He puts within us so that we can know the very thoughts of God. Now, understand, I do not think, I do not think that what Paul means by that is that if we just go out to a quiet place in the woods and we sit, right, maybe hum a, a nice little ditty or something like that, we will all of a sudden begin to tap into the mind of God and it will just begin to flow through us. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul will go on to say that these things are revealed to us in the words that we speak through the Scriptures. 
Nevertheless, in order to know and understand and appreciate the mind of God, you must have the Spirit of God. And Paul says that has been made available to every single person who has been put in Christ. The Spirit has been put in you. This is modeled then in what we're reading about this morning in Genesis chapter 18. The reason that Abraham is going to get privileged information is because of his privileged position in relationship to the Lord. But the second reason that God is going to give Abraham special information and reveal to him something that he otherwise would not know comes in the next line, comes in verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he can command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The Lord is going to give Abraham special insight into his ways because of his privilege, but also because of Abraham's posterity, because of what Abraham has been charged to do. So if we put the two things together, I think this is what's happening in the first part of this passage. When God asked, somewhat rhetorically, should I tell Abraham, should I let him in on what I'm going to do? From God's mind, the reasoning or the answer is yes, because on the one hand, Abraham has a special role and a special call. He needs to know these things because he is supposed to be bringing blessing to all the nations. I'm about to bring judgment. Abraham needs to know why judgment is coming rather than why blessing is coming. Do you see? And it's also important for Abraham to be let in on what I'm about to do because Abraham has the responsibility of passing on this revelation, this knowledge, and this insight to his descendants after him so that they know what it takes to live in such a way that they can be instruments of blessing to the world around them. This means, in the context of Genesis 18 and 19, that for God's people to be a blessing to those around them, and I'm thinking primarily right now about people who are not in the body of Christ, who are not part of the people of God, although you could apply this just as well to those who are already part of God's people. In order for God's people to be a blessing to those around them, it is not enough to simply know the good gifts that God gives. You also need to know the rather bad, ugly things that God gives according to His righteous judgment. How will Abraham, as a parent, be a blessing to his son? One way that he'll be a blessing to his son is to say, Isaac, when that time comes, sorry, Isaac's not here. Whoever, Abraham's talking, I don't know who he's talking to. Whoever Abraham is talking to, one of the ways that Abraham is going to be a blessing is to say, God is so gracious that He offers His blessing freely to those who come and walk with Him, right? Walk before me and be blameless. 
Genesis 17, and I will establish my covenant with you. But the other side to that is blessing is found in walking before, walking with the Lord. Judgment and cursing is found when you walk away from the Lord, when you are not walking before Him according to His will. Isn't it a blessing for someone to know where not to go so that they will not be crushed? Isn't that a blessing? Isn't it a blessing for me to teach my children at a young age, don't go play in the street. A car will hit you and you will die. Not a fun thing to say, but a necessary thing to say. It is a blessing for children to know where they can thrive, where they can live, where they can enjoy freedom, and know that it is within these prescribed boundaries because outside of this life is death and sin and misery and judgment. If Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations, if Abraham is going to raise up descendants after him who will carry on that call to be a blessing to the nations, they need to be able to tell others where blessing is to be found and where judgment is to be avoided. That's why Abraham needs to know what God is about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, people, it is not enough it is not enough as Christians to merely give the easy parts of the gospel to someone without letting them know there is a hell to flee. If someone does not know that they are walking every day under the shadow of God's judgment, which could rightly fall at any moment, why would they be motivated to run to Christ? If all that we give them are platitudes about how good life can be if you do it our way, but we don't tell them why it is that life is so good because of what we've been saved from, we're not giving them the full measure of blessing that is ours in Christ because we know the mind of God that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates His love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And as you go through Scripture, you begin to see that there are ways in which these lessons, this information that Abraham is being given is expounded on and built upon. So, for example, listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. But what do we normally associate Sodom and Gomorrah with? When we think about the judgment that came down on them, why did God judge them? 
immorality. Gross sexual immorality. Listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Why was Sodom judged? Sexual immorality? Certainly. Is that all? No. Ezekiel says they were also judged because they were comfortable. They were affluent. And in their comfortable affluence, they couldn't be bothered with helping those who were less fortunate than them. And so I took them out. So what what are you going to do then as a Christian community? Are we going to put the emphasis on the focus on the big, glaring, awkward, uncomfortable sins? God gives us a record of His judgments in human time and space so that we know not to live like them. We don't want to encounter that same kind of judgment or discipline. Okay, therefore, I will abstain from sexual immorality. Good. You ought to. God's judgment rightly falls on those who are immoral. But God's judgment also rightly falls on those who are so comfortable in their wealth and their prosperity that they can't be bothered with those who are in material need. That needs to be shared. That needs to be talked about. In Jude, in the New Testament, Jude talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. If God reveals His mind on these matters, if God reveals His actions in His written words so that we can know His mind, so that we can learn and be trained by them, it is not enough to cherry-pick the lessons that we like and set aside the lessons that we don't like. Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that they will encounter in the next chapter is a good example. There are probably anywhere from two to 200 types of people 
that would approach Sodom and Gomorrah and fall on different lines in terms of where they would lay the emphasis in terms of why they deserve judgment. Some people are going to preach and teach the sexual immorality from the time the sun rises to the time that the sun sets. Other people are going to say, well, the problem with Christians is that they're too uptight about sex. Don't you see in Ezekiel chapter 16 that the reason that God judged them was because they didn't care for their neighbors, because they didn't care for the poor? And what I want to say, what we want to say is, we don't have the luxury of saying what God did or didn't do when God has already clearly revealed it to us. He judged because of their sexual immorality, and He judged them because of their cold-heartedness. It's an example given to us so that as we live, we can say, if the judgment of God falls on immorality, if the judgment of God falls on cold-heartedness, guess what I don't want to be doing? I don't want to be doing sexual immorality. I don't want to be doing cold-hearted things. I want to be generous. I want to give. I want to sacrifice. God isn't just gossiping with Abraham. He's telling him this for a reason. Abraham, take note of this. You take note of where the blessing is secured and where blessing is lost. You take note of where blessing is to be found and where judgment is found. Because you and your descendants have been called to make that known to other people who don't have a clue. Listen to what one old dead guy has to say about this principle at work in the opening verses of this episode. He says, truly, God does not make known His will to us, that the knowledge of it may perish with us, but that we may be His witnesses to posterity, and that they may deliver the knowledge received through us from hand to hand to their descendants. In this manner, the truth of God is to be propagated by us, so that no one may retain His knowledge for His own private use, but that each may edify others according to His own calling and to the measure of His faith. You want to be a blessing to the world around you? One of the places to start is to ask and to find, where is it that I have the opportunity to share God's knowledge and will with someone else? If you're a parent in this room, you've already got your number one answer. Your first priority is to teach your children what God has revealed in His Word your first priority. And then you look around and you see that no matter how much we talk about, no matter how much we share, no matter how much we preach, right, there is the frustration that it doesn't really seem to be making much of a dent, right? Anyone watch the news? Anyone keep up with legislation that goes through Congress? Anyone especially optimistic or hopeful about the way the culture is going right now? 
Show of hands? No? So what do you do? I think the other side to this is, it's not just simply that you share what God has revealed so that others can benefit from that, but then you live it out so that your home is a little outpost of God's blessing in a very bleak and dark world. So that Edgewood is this little embassy or outpost of covenanted people who are experiencing God's blessing and who hold up to the watching world the opportunity to find blessing themselves if they just come to Jesus. God reveals to Abraham what he is about to do, not so that Abraham can sit on the information, but because it is crucial for Abraham to see the righteousness of God even in the act of judgment so that Abraham can know how to walk with God and how to equip his descendants after him to do likewise. And it's as he and his descendants walk in right relationship with God that they will be a blessing to those around them. That is the mission and the goal that God has placed on every one of his new covenant people as well. Learn it, love it, live it. So God finally tells Abraham what it is that he's going to do, and then we get Abraham's response. For Abraham, all of the interaction that he has with the Lord can be summed up in one question. That question at the very end of verse 25. Abraham hears that God is about to pour out his judgment, is going to examine closely the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then judge accordingly. Abraham may not know all of the ins and outs or the inner workings of what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he knows enough to know that that is not good news for them. He knows that judgment is inevitable. Abraham now wants to know, now that you have told me this, will you do what is right when you judge? And what does Abraham mean by that? What does it mean to judge rightly or justly in this context? When you judge, Lord, are you just going to in mass destroy everyone? You mean anyone who lives within the walls of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, anyone who has that zip code on their mailing address, you're just, without discrimination, you're just going to wipe everyone out? Is that what it means to judge rightly? Surely, God, you will take into account that there may actually be righteous people living among the wicked. You won't treat them the same way, will you? That wouldn't be right. Notice then that in all of this back and forth that goes on between Abraham and the Lord, there are two key things that come out loud and clear. Number one, 
is the fact that God does make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Hold your place here and go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Follow along, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. We're picking up in mid-sentence here. And if he, talking about the Lord, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men... For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Part of what it means for God to be a righteous, a righteous judge is that he recognizes and distinguishes between those who belong to him and those who do not. One of the things that's very frustrating about living in a world that is broken and that seems to be spiraling out of control into more and more insanity and chaos is that we feel as if we're being left to go down the drain along with the culture and society around us. You can't avoid it. I'm not doing any of these things over here, but I'm suffering for it. Society is falling apart, not because of anything that I've done, you, right? You, you feel that way sometimes, don't you? Sure you do. So you could go to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and you could take just sort of a hard, embittered, embattled approach to it and say, well, the conclusion here is that God is going to judge all these filthy, wicked people, and that'll be a good day. Or you could not allow the chaos and the corruption around you to make you bitter and jaded and cynical, and you could say, yes, this world is a mess right now, but the Lord still knows that I'm here. The Lord still sees his people. The Lord sees what it is that we are struggling with, what it is that we have to fight against, and he is not blind to the challenges that we face. He is able to keep us safe and secure in the faith. He is able to preserve us even when everything else around us is crumbling and 
at the very end of it all, He will rescue us from that last final judgment that must certainly come because of the sin and the rebellion that exists in this world. So the first thing that Abraham would see is that the Lord does distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. He is not blind in this anger and rage, irrational, where he's just smiting people right and left because he can't contain himself anymore. The second thing that comes across in Abraham's interaction with the Lord is almost more unbelievable than that. No, I'm going to say that it is. You tell me if I'm wrong. The second thing that comes across is that we're reminded again that by nature, by His nature, who God is at His core, God is far more willing to show mercy than He is to judge. Right? We talked about this when we went through the Noah narratives. We talked about God's natural work and God's strange work, the natural work, what God does just as an overflow of His nature, that He is good and kind and gracious, and that just flows out of Him. It's His strange work to discipline, to judge. That is not according to His nature. It is an extension of His rightness, of His holiness, even here that comes to the forefront because Abraham is pleading with the Lord. Here is a city that the Lord has said is exceedingly wicked. And Abraham says, what if you could find 50 people? No, let's cut to the chase. What if you could find just 10 people soaking in a city of corruption? And God says, listen, God says, not simply that I would not destroy the righteous ten, God says that if there were ten in the city, I would not destroy the city. Look at verse 26. If I find in Sodom... 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why we're even still here, seated, in a place like this is because God in His mercy looks on His people in Columbus, Georgia and says, for their sake alone, I will see to it that Columbus does not implode and get swallowed up in the earth. You ever thought about that? That God is so kind and generous that He would far, far rather extend mercy and grace for His people, even if that means that the wicked continue to thrive for another day.
Ultimately, this casts our view, casts a shadow to the work of Christ. Will God find 50 righteous people in Sodom? No. Will he find 10 righteous people in Sodom? No. He will not find enough righteousness to spare the city. So when God looks at humanity and he says, if there is any way for humanity to be spared, it's going to have to be that there is some source of righteousness that justifies that. Where is that righteousness going to be found? In you? In me? No, it's found in Christ. The only thing that holds back God's righteous judgment from falling on this world and this creation is that the righteousness of Christ runs so rich and so deep that God in His mercy is willing to withhold His judgment for the sake of His Son and for sake of the people that He is bringing into union with His Son. It is the righteousness of Christ that gives us even the next breath that we draw. And you know that. You and I can be a blessing by letting other people know that, that the righteousness that leads to life is found in Christ. That we have someone better than Abraham interceding for us I have Christ who has entered into the Holy of Holies, who has entered into the throne room of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes daily for me and for you and for this city and for His people. I need that, and you do too. God is a just and a righteous judge. He will do what is right always. And he shows us glimpses of his righteous judgment so that we can know the mind of God, so that we can know his ways, so that we can be better equipped to share our blessing, our advantage of knowing the mind of God with others. And so that at the end of the day, we can be drawn into the work that Christ Himself does, interceding on behalf of others for grace instead of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are a righteous judge. Please help us not to say things like that with a spirit of cold arrogance. 
as we look down our nose at those who have not been brought into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we ask that just like we see in Genesis 18, that as we come to know the mind of God, as you have revealed it to us in the pages of Scripture, as you have revealed it to us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that that would change the way that we live and the way that we interact with other people so that with that increasing knowledge and understanding given to us by a spirit of revelation, we would be effective blessings in the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and friends. Help us to continue to draw on your mind to be a blessing to each other to stand firm even when life is difficult in a world that is hostile to us. We thank you for Christ who suffered and died for us, who intercedes for us even now at your right hand so that we can receive all of the blessings that we don't deserve. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Before, we hand, before I hand it over to Andy to close out with the song, let me just make one appeal. If you are here and you don't know what it means to be safe and secure from the certain judgment that is to come, I would love to talk to you about how that certainty, assurance, and how that promise of safety and forgiveness is given in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. If that's you, don't leave this sanctuary quickly. I'll move out to the back, but I'll be coming back through. I'll sit and talk for as long as you'd like. Andy? Um, well, as, we, as I was uh, listening to that sermon, uh, we were going to close with another song, but I feel like it's appropriate that we close with Yet Not I. But through Christ to me, we will not do the whole song, but we're going to take it at measure 45. I'm throwing it on the band uh, unexpectedly. So we're going to take it at measure 45 to the very end. Um, some of them will probably want me to do that because I butchered the end of it. So like, let's get it right. Come on, Andy. But um, So let's stand together as we close with uh, Yet Not I. We're going to take that last verse, that fourth verse, uh, with every breath, starting at measure 45.
you're dismissed.